This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. The projects that architects and training work on while in school are rarely about solving practical problems and issues. The real objectives are almost always lurking just below the surface. Your projects from architecture school are silly, but for good reasons. Today's episode is brought to you with support from Construct. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking about architecture school projects and how, at least on the surface, they appear to be silly, and at times, fantastically unpractical in their nature. Maybe an easier way to describe this is a phrase my dad used to say to me, like literally all the time, other than, don't put your feet on that. <laughs> You go to college to learn how to learn, not to solve a particular problem. So did he tell you that when you were in college or before? Like even when you were a little kid? Well, little's wrong, but before I went to college. As you got towards college age? Yeah, he really started hammering it in Yeah, as I was approaching my college years. At the time, maybe it was, you know, trade schools or technical schools were maybe a little bit more prevalent. Prevalent, yeah, than they are now for sure. There was never a conversation in the Borson house about whether or not we were going to college. That was a foregone conclusion. Yeah, mine too. But I would imagine that some of these were the results of the conversations that, you know, my dad's engineering degree and his college experience was very, as you could probably guess, very linear and binary. I mean, there was a process and you did it and it cranked out. For an engineer? No. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they were making a product. And so when we would talk about what I was doing, One of the cool things we did this week is we designed t-shirts for the school, right? So we could say like UT School of Architecture. Yeah. And he'd say, really? Like that was a thing? I was like, well, it was extracurricular. Not like you got extra points. It was just, hey, down in the- It was fun to do. In the quad, we're doing this. And he's like, okay, so how'd that work? I go, well, we went out, we got a bunch of fish and like octopus and whatever. We painted them and we pushed them on a shirt. He's like, what? (laughs) And then he's like, okay, that's okay. Because you go to school to learn how to learn, not to learn how to do a thing. So if today you, what you did was you painted fish and pressed them on a shirt and transferred ink in that way, you probably walked away with something you didn't plan on walking away with. I'm assuming these are not real fish and octopus. No, they were real fish and it was real octopus. It said UT School of Architecture and then the architecture was scratched out and it said fish underneath it. UT School of Fish. (laughs) Stupid. But you would paint this like I had like a grouper or something. And I would put paint on this fish. You wanted to go early because, like, scales started coming off and it was hot. Oh, my God. This sounds so terrible. It was so cool. I had, they were, like, the coolest shirts. This fish I had, like, wrapped. It was like a real fish. PETA, we apologize hey, for we, Bob's whatever. We didn't kill the fish. It was already dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just abused it. The poor dead thing. Instead was, of, like, it was in a, somebody's meal, it was in a like, better place. We're going to slather it with paint and flap it around on T-shirts yeah, we for the dis- next five hours. We disrespected the fish. That's yes, your point. that's my point. Yeah. Maybe the objective was learn that disrespecting fish is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> We're not here to talk about disrespecting fish. I think we need to clarify that that statement that architecture school projects are silly is not a unilaterally true statement to all people and all programs and all studios at all, at times. all times. Very yeah. true. I mean, there's a scale of silliness, I think, when you go through school. Not necessarily silliness, but the abstractness of what what it is that you're doing. I would even posit that the students don't understand the objectives at the time. Oh, I would definitely agree. 
When you should know. I can corroborate. That. Yeah. <laughs> because I know. Yeah. That they don't understand it. Sometimes I think it takes you a while of working even to realize, oh, that's really what this was about five years ago when I was doing it in studio. Yeah. Now it makes sense. Or I can apply that knowledge. And this that was actually helpful when at the time maybe it didn't seem helpful. Probably more than likely it was frustrating. I think that's the bigger the bigger thing for some of us. You get frustrated about what am I supposed to be learning from this? So, Andrew, it should be noted that you are a college architecture school professor and you do... Design studios. Design studios. So when you said you could corroborate the fact that students don't necessarily understand what the objective might be by the project that they're being assigned, I will just say that we didn't focus on what I would call the more practical aspects of a project for a long time. Like I was probably four years into school before we had a conversation about how to keep water out of a building. Where I teach is not quite, they don't keep the practicality out of it that long, but it's also because it's a four-year program, not a five-year program. So the shift, I think some of that stuff gets compressed. So we have the beginning. And part of it is Architecture Studio has one of the objectives that has is it has to teach you how to be architecture students just in the beginning. Yeah, that first semester is like a mind-blowing experience unless you've grown up around an architect or something like that. I know a lot of students are like, whoa, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And they well, either like it or they don't. Well, it's I mean, a different, well, it's like, uh, it's the idea that I've been going to school for my entire life up until this point, And you think that college is going to be, at least architecture school is going to be more of the, the same kind of school academic environment process that I've been going through. And it's really not. No, there's a big kind of reboot that happens. Cause I can tell you that in my first year architecture school, they made it a point to say, all right, we're going to spend a lot of time trying to get you to unlearn, unlearn things and we're going to try to start building you back up. So we started having, at the time we might not have really known what it was, even though I'm sure that they told us, but it just didn't resonate because we didn't have the language mastery yet, but it was things like form and shape and mass and adjacency and positive negative space. And you don't understand like what a party diagram is or, or the role that it plays in the design process or how do you have an idea and then, solve that problem. And if they give you something that's really practical, you're going to solve it with the skill set that you currently have. Your individual experience is going to inform, which is the point. Let's be honest. Your personal experience should inform your design process. Of course, always. And it always will. I mean, there's no escaping that. But you have to add more, more arrows to your quiver over that personal experience. You learn to start asking different sorts of questions that you've never had to think about before. Yeah, and I think you also start to try to see things from other perspectives than your own. If you end up later in your educational career doing a house, it shouldn't be the same kind of house that you would have done before you started the program. Everybody has a concept of a house and what it is. They live in one. If you said, all right, first semester you're going to design a house, and then they say fourth year, let's design a house, they should be vastly different in the way that they the design of them. The idea that you do something on day one, you should be better at it four years Well, later. but not even better at it, but just it's not better because, I mean... If I start pre-calculus on day one and pre-calculus, I should be better at it, but it's the same thing. I'm saying that it should have a different bent to it because you understand the world differently or you sure. look at the world That's differently. Fair. That's a fair way to describe it. You're not just becoming better at something that you don't have understanding of. You're learning how to evaluate and create a different product through the same process. That was the point. So how do you choose your projects in your studios? Well, I would imagine that the university has established objectives for your studio based on the year that you're teaching? 
So each semester, there's a set goal of understanding. The first year, it is things like form and space and light, hierarchy, and those sort of basic principles of design fundamentals. And then in the second year, it's things like materiality and assemblies and some other things like that. So each one, yes, has its own set goals of these are the concepts and the ideas that we want students to understand at this level. Yeah. And then your job as professor is to take those Figure away. that out, how I'm going to make that happen. You craft the projects based on what those goals are. Although I find that sometimes you can maybe do the similar project, but at the different levels, put emphasis on different aspects of the same project. Part of me thinks that would be an interesting concept to just repeat the same project. <laughs> Well, we can circle back on that point a little bit later because I wrote down here that one of the things I wanted us to talk about were some of the examples of the projects we had that might be a little bit, you know, different. Mm -hmm. And one of the projects that I was going to talk about, it was a house. And while it wasn't technically the first house I'd ever designed, the first house was actually a sea ranch, you know, house out at sea ranch. Oh, a hypothetical house out at sea ranch. And it was shockingly bad. (laughs) But it was, the objectives were had to do like, what would a house that's in this environment look like versus the rooftop of Casa Mia, which is, that was the project. Yeah. And Charles Moore was actually, he taught at UT at the time. He was one mm-hmm. of our jurors and was responsible for Sea Ranch. So I, I don't really consider that a house based on the time we had to do it and what the objectives were, which weren't really about doing a real house. Mm-hmm. But the project we had later, the professor, probably half the class might have had graduating seniors in it. And he put an additional design criteria on us to say, make this house be a reflection of how you feel your education went here from your time in school. So it wasn't just do a house. It was make it a commentary as well. And I think those are the kind of things that you don't know year one. If somebody was to say that to you, you would be like, I don't even understand what that means. Yeah. But at year four, you're like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. I can run with this. You're like, the idea is already in my head. Well, let me ask you this, because I've actually sat in on some of your projects at school, some of your students' projects. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting, as a juror, I have a certain methodology that I want to go through. And one is, when the student has their work up on the wall, I want to say, this was good, this could use some improvement, and this was a miss. A little good, a little bad. A little oh, like what, in your commentary to that. Yeah, yeah, my objective is to hit all three spectrums. I don't want to be the one guy that goes, this was amazing, everything's the greatest. And they leave and I go, there's no takeaway for that kid. Or the one guy that's like, it sucked completely. Or it's just terrible. Yeah, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And even though one year's I did, I don't really feel bad about it. You but shouldn't because it, it, was, it wasn't that. It stuck with me. Okay, people who were listening, what happened is. They didn't do the work. They didn't do the work. And we were there for like six hours. It was not a small class. How many students were in that class? 22, I think, was in that class. It was a big class. And so you kind of do the math. You're like, oh, we got like eight minutes per person. Obviously, in the beginning, you spend a little bit too much time on people who go first. Yeah, the first half always is longer. Longer. And then as you're going through, you're like, we're not going to hit these students. And, you know, and they deserve as much attention as everyone else. So as a juror, you start thinking about that. It's a hard thing to wrangle. Yeah. And one of these students pinned it up. He was like describing all this stuff. And I go, I don't see it. Well, you're talking about it's not here. And so I went, you know what? Here's what you need to work on. If you want to talk about it, you actually got to draw it. You got to have something that we can look at. And you haven't done that. So we're going to go ahead and skip you and move on to the next student. And that guy got like 30 seconds. Yeah. For a juror, I think it's great for you to say, I'm going to try to do A, B, and C. Well, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting, this is not specific to your studio by any stretch, was you can see, as I've gotten older, a little bit more seasoned, I can start to see like maybe what the objective of this project was. Not the solution necessarily, but 
the professor came up with a project, they've given it to you. And the student is talking about something you go, you've missed the mark. Not that your project's not good, but you're not learning what really the objective of the studio should be. Here's an example. Some of the projects, and it might've been yours, but I don't know if it was, it was a really complicated project. And there were like a billion moving parts. And I was sitting there thinking, I go, this is too big a project for these students. And it was huge. They're like, and here's where I put the Xerox machine. And I was like, this is not, we shouldn't be talking about that stuff. We shouldn't be talking. And so I go, you have spent time trying to solve the problem, which is here's the program. I have this building and in the program, it says I need to have a place to put a Xerox machine. So gosh, darn it. I'm solving that problem. Here's where I put the Xerox machine. Instead of saying, hey, my concept was how you get from the arrival moment in the parking lot to the building and understand where I'm supposed to go in this vast compound of spaces. Mm-hmm. And and I go, well, is it the students? I don't want to say that students don't have any responsibility kind of understanding what the objective is. But everyone should have a little skin in the game. How do they know what it is? As Your job as a professor is to say, don't get bogged down in the weeds. And you know, I've had conversations where you tell somebody something, you come back the next day and they've gone down a completely different kind of path. They're even more bogged down in the weeds than what, when you were telling them not to get in the weeds. Yeah. So when you're picking your projects, which is, we're circling back to the question that we asked 15 minutes ago. Yeah. A long time ago was how do you choose your programs, your studio projects so that you try to help students, even if they don't realize you're trying to help them. Like you don't give them that project that's got 200,000 square feet of programming in it. Mm-hmm. You did a project where it was design as office for a creative type, whether it's a landscape architect, yeah. architect, whatever the case may be. And I sat in on that jury. Yeah. And I really liked that project. Part of it, what I liked is because I found some of the answers like wildly amusing. Like, have you ever been in an office space in your life? And you can see the objective wasn't, you didn't say your footprint has to be this big. You didn't tell them how big the building had to be. Yeah. And oh my gosh, some students' projects, I was like, that's like the equivalent of like a 25-story office tower, you know, and there's like yoga rooms and there's lots of, I have this weird rando space over here. So this is like my contemplation area, you know, just all this. There's a lot like, of quality of life yeah. benefits in these places. Yeah. And the thing that I love so much about it was the idea that, and this is a total generational issue. It was... Like, here's the space where the desks are, which represented the least amount of square 10% of the, yeah. It it was nothing. But there were, like, yoga studios. There were Zen gardens. There was, like, I sit out here and I can think about what what I'm trying to do. Oh, yeah. And they're, like, 85% of the building is circulation. Yeah. It was great in that sense. But you go, the problem they're solving, they're not restricted by, don't make it big. You can make it as big as you want. Our goal here, this is not a programming exercise. Yeah. Like the no, objective you're walking away with is not how can you solve this in the least amount of square footage, which is really the real world application. You get to do that the rest of your life <laughs> yeah. for the most part, right? Yeah. yeah so, so you can no. say you can make it as big a building as you want. And I mean, it was pretty hilarious because it was so impractical. I mean, that, <laughs> that was kind of yeah. the example of. And that was a second year studio. And so. it was a second year studio. And you kind of go, this is about form and space and adjacencies and procession. And, and in our. And the programmer I teach, that's the first time that they actually do actual building. Yeah. Something that has a program. Because before that, it's all about form and space and light. You could tell there was a disconnect. It's wild. It was amazing. Well, I thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit about some of the projects that were. I struggle with the word using silly. They're kind of silly, but the ones that, and I guess 
and I'm doing a bad job explaining it, even though I've kind of already written on my notes. The idea was I have a list of some projects that I did. You have the same kind of list that we did. And the reason these particular ones made the cut on my list of why I thought they were silly was as I look back on them, now I realize what the learning objective was when I will readily admit that I did not realize what that objective was in that moment. Mm -hmm. It was just to do like a cool building. Even when I was in school, I used to say to myself, I go, why can't I ever say my justification for doing something is because it's cool. I thought it was cool, man. Like, why'd you do that? Because it's cool. You would get chewed up by everybody if that's what you said. And that was your answer. Right, right, rightfully so. so. I know. Rightfully but so. right, like, again, I agree with you. When you're in school, that's kind of what it is. Although my question would be, at that time, I don't think you ever think when you're in it that they're silly. This is some real stuff I got going here, and this is the goods. Yeah, I never thought. I, really? Well, I remember a friend of mine, he had a, a project where it basically was a habitat pod that packed up and relocated every night. And it was like a walking tree that had a hanging basket kind of, th I mean, it was, it was very trippy. Yeah. Even then I was like, what is that? This wasn't just a, an experiment in how you can expand your creativity. This was like so impractical and off the charts, bizarre did he get high marks? No, he got terrible grade. Well, you know what? No, no. I actually think he did okay. But I think that's because the teacher liked him. It reminds me of this one I had in grad school. It was over a summer thing, and they would bring in famous, well-known architects for two weeks. And he would just do a little two-week charrette project. And this one guy did an egg. <laughs> he built this platform, and there was an egg on it. I mean, but it was a huge egg. The human beings would inhabit it, but that was the project. And I was just like, really? Really, dude? An egg. An egg. Are you kidding me? An egg on stilts. Well, the first one that came to me when I started coming, I have three that I wrote down here that I thought were kind of memorable in the sense that there was a takeaway that I still think about to this day. Yeah. And I won't spend much time on them and we can go back and forth. But the first one, I think I was in my third year studio and this was one of the last studios we had. I think the studio we had, we were the only ones that did like five projects, distinct separate projects in that semester in a semester yeah. and everyone else just did one. And so, and we were being evaluated against other students, like how are we come along in our development? And we were all kind of complaining a little bit about like everyone's been <laughs> yeah. up their work and they're like, why does this one studio have so much less work than everybody else? And we're like, this represents 20% of all our work Two weeks we've done. That we did three yeah. weeks. Yeah. Everyone else has got the whole semester. So we were a little conscious about that. I don't remember the premise for the, our project quite honestly, but I, what I do remember is my solution. And it was basically a theme park where there were five pavilions and each pavilion represented a certain architectural style. And Egypt world and Roman no, it wasn't locations. It was, this is Bauhaus and this is international style. And this is, you know, okay. Right. This is uh, you know, something else. Rococo. Yeah. And so, and everyone, it was really, it was a hard concept to, for a lot of folks to grasp. Rightfully so. <laughs> rightfully so. Yeah. But one of the professors was really kind of into it. And he started talking about how the Rothko Chapel was in Houston by Johnson. Mm -hmm. And he was describing it in such a way. And, there, and I've been there several times since, but I'd never been there up to this point. Never that point, yeah. And he's describing it. And I'm like, this sounds like the most amazing space I've ever been. I got to go. I got to go. So I made mm -hmm. it a point to go. And the way that, however he said it, and I know that he didn't describe it the way I internalized it, but the way I internalized it, it's a Mark Rothko. Paintings. There are these huge paintings in this room. It's kind of, I think it's an octagonal shape. 
and they have huge walls and they have these big Rothko pieces on the wall. Well, the way like like 10 by 12, like 16 by 20. Gigantic. What I thought I was going to, what I was going to find upon arriving at the Rothko chapel was that Philip Johnson had designed a space that was really, really dark. And the idea was that you go sit down in front of one of these pieces and you can't even really see it. And it takes your eyes 20 minutes to really kind of adjust. And over this period of your eyes adjusting, the paint reveals itself. The painting reveals itself to you. Like you don't really see much of anything when you sit down. But after like five minutes, you start to detect the perimeter shape of where the paint is on the canvas. Mm -hmm. Five minutes after that, you start to realize that these are not blacks, but they're purples and maroons. And, and I thought about, I go, this sounds amazing. Like this forces you to stop and slow down. And I went and it wasn't even close to that. (laughs) And there was like a janitor's mop bucket that was like literally like a foot away from one of the paintings because there's no place for the janitorial people to put their stuff. It shot my wheels off. (laughs) But the big takeaway I left from that, which had nothing to do with my design, And not really what that professor was trying to describe, but my misunderstanding of what he was describing revealed process to me in a way that made me think about how someone experiences a space, not upon arrival, but after reflection. How does it change when you're in the space for a while? while. I would never have gotten that if he had actually described it the way that it was, would have missed out on that completely. And that's, and that is something that I think about to this day on every single project that I design is how does a space change when you occupy it over a period of time? Yeah. I think that's interesting. It's one of those things I wonder if he, if he was there when it was first open, that's why it had that monumental impact. But then as you went, how many ever years later and you're like, well, yeah, I don't know about this. I was so disappointed. And while everything about that was a swing and a miss, my takeaway was a home run. Yeah. Which I think is kind of remarkable. Yeah, and I'm sure you didn't get that till later on, maybe. I certainly didn't get it until after I went to the space and had to go, why does everyone think this building's so great when I think it's so terrible? Like, what am I, what am I missing out on? It took a little bit more knowledge and understanding and for me to internalize that experience. And probably 10 years later is how I think about it and the way that I can articulate it now and that a space changes when you occupy it over time. Mm-hmm. Even how light, I think maybe it's the reason why I like Oculus so much, or Oculi so much, is that how the sun moves through the through space, the space. and it, you can sit there and be a part of it. Yeah, and well, so one of my projects like that was a lighthouse, actually. It's one of my early projects in school, and yeah, we designed a lighthouse, like really, and these were some of the craziest, most non-practical, non-buildable, non-performing lighthouses ever. Mm-hmm. But the whole goal, I think, in looking in retrospect, it was just about form and light. And those were the two objectives that you were learning to light, deal with. Light for the person who has to maintain the lighthouse or the light that the lighthouse oh, both, puts out? Both. So it was... An, was that described to you as the project or is that part of your takeaway? That's though? part of the takeaway. I mean, the idea, the description was we did a lighthouse and it, you're going to design a lighthouse and deal with the quality of light, whether that was the light coming from it that you could create or the light that came through it by what you designed or the combination thereof. And I really thought that was the best thing ever. Right. At that point I was like, man, my lighthouse is kicking everybody else's butts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and I kept that model for a long time. Cause I was like, cause it was, I built the model, right. Yeah. You had to build, that was the goal. It was a model with a light bulb in it. If you were cool, 
you put a light bulb in it. That was a thing. And at the time, it, I didn't realize that really it was about the form and the light that you were creating and how those two things play with each other as opposed to I'm just building the cool lighthouse building. The premise behind the program versus just the program and the project, the building type. You know what I think about now, now that I'm old, and I look at it and I start thinking, well, there's a reason why lighthouses don't have a lot of glass on them. It's because based on where they're located, they're going to get covered in sea spray and salt, and they're going to be constantly grimy and look like you're looking through antique glass. And Or if there's any view at all. And who's going to clean it? Like you got to time it with the stair on the interior that's circling around so you can actually like access that actual window. Because you're, you're not going up and cleaning it from the outside. Well, I guess you could, but it, well, it you'd have to have scaffold and all that kind of How short yeah. is this lighthouse, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. But when you're in school, you don't have to worry about that. That's not the point. No. The maintenance. I wrote a blog post the other day, and it had to do with skylights and an Oculus that were put into a project. And somebody asked me, they're like, how do you clean it? Someone got to get on the roof to clean the skylight? And I'm like, no, there's silicon dioxide film that's on top of the glass. And so it's so smooth. They're the quote, unquote, self-cleaning. Yeah. So they're like a large rain event will easily clean it off. And I go, well. And it's easy to get on the roof and wipe it off if that if it's if so it's bad. That bad. If it gets so bad. More from Life of an Architect in a moment. Hey, Andrew. October's right around the corner, and we have something fun coming up, and it doesn't involve candy or costumes. Yeah, we're going to be at Construct Expo picking up some CUs and recording a few podcasts. Construct is an AAC educational program and exhibition that has the goal of bringing together the different disciplines within the construction industry to help improve the future of the built environment. During the three-day educational program and expo, industry leaders converge with the common goal of educating and inspiring each other for the betterment of the industry. Construct features over 50 educational sessions on topics ranging from design to construction documents, building science and performance, to materials and methods. In addition, you can earn over 17 AIA health, safety, and welfare learning units at this event. In the Expo Hall, you will see the latest in products from over 175 companies, experience live product demos, participate in hands-on workshops, engage with peers and us, Bob and Andrew, (laughs) in the new Coffee Talk Lounge where you can attend a live recording of this very podcast where you will marvel at our abilities to sit on a couch and talk to each other at the same time. That's amazing. Join us in National Harbor, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., on October 9th through 11th, 2019, at the Gaylord National Resort and Convention Center. That's just down the Potomac. If you've been meaning to check out Construct, or, like us, need to catch up on your CEUs for the year, you're in luck. Because you are a listener of this podcast, Construct is offering a free expo pass and 20% off the cost of education sessions. Registration is now open. To take advantage of this special promotion, simply go to www.constructshow.com forward slash life of an architect. You must register through this landing page to receive your discount, which will be automatically applied when you check out. Of course, other restrictions apply. Check the website for more details. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, but always wondered what it looks like behind the scenes, come see us at Construct 2019. We'll be in the Coffee Talk Lounge from 145 to 245 on Thursday, October 10th. Be there early. Not like me. (laughs) (laughs) See you Thursday, October 10th. Exactly. Check the website, FOMO. You have FOMO. FOMO Deto. FOMO Deets.
Well, you know, one of the other projects I did in school that I thought was, was kind of funny, it was really the only interior project. I mean, this was all about the interiors. And this was actually the same studio where the guy had to do, did the walking, sleeping pod tree thing. It was for Vitra, I believe. And it was... Oh, that's a China. It was for displaying and selling China glassware, stuff like that. And so really had to do with lighting, which really wasn't that hard for us to understand that that was kind of the point. But I decided that what I was going to do, and it's kind of funny, I chose this now that I'm seeing another relation. (laughs) It was a really dark space because I wanted to treat like everything was... The China was like Rothko's art. Yeah, it was high drama display. It wasn't volume display. There wasn't, I mean, everything had its own little niche that it went into because these are collections. It's not like this is not a bulk order kind of place. Yeah. And so, but everything was black with this kind of very dramatic lighting on it. And you had to walk through this serpentine. You didn't just like, it wasn't a rectangular space. It was a museum display of goods. That's what it was. And the program didn't call for us to make it like a museum display. The crown jewels of Vitra. That's right. And so this is what I did. And the professor really liked it. He's like, this is really great. But I look back on it now and I go, I was only displaying like eight things in this <laughs> 2,000 square foot space. Yeah. Like, That's I mean, funny. everything yeah. was such a precious gem that it was completely impractical. But the objective was about the experience and how do you display something and how do you light it and how can you take something that's inanimate and doesn't move and it form a relationship or some type of level of engagement with somebody who is walking past it. I'm just sitting here thinking, really, you have a bench in front, and if you sit there for 20 minutes, then the edge yeah. of the china starts to show up. It starts to it reveal is. itself to you. Yeah. That, was your, that would be your pitch. You'd be like, just... Let's do it over and over again. Same yeah, pitch. I think, it was, I think it was it. One of the other things, there's these moments that I think, and it seems like it starts to happen to students around their third or fourth year. And that's the idea of serendipity. Like something that you weren't planning happens, but you now know enough about the experience of the process to not undo the thing that you didn't intend to do. Yeah, those unintended solutions that come up. Because I ended up having a project. This was kind of a wacky program. Certainly wasn't a real project. But it was on the side of this like mountain. It was a visiting artist's studio. Like artists in residence? Yeah. yeah. There were five habitats that you had to do. But one of the artist in residence was, it was for a butterfly pavilion. Like, I don't know whatever the name is for someone who specializes in the study of butterflies. I'll have to look it up. So here was this kind of landing pad that had these five little studio buildings, like freestanding. They got like their own building. And then you left this top pad and you moved down and there were these glass pavilions where there was, one of them was like a horticulturist. One was a butterfly pavilion. A butterflyist. A butterflyist. (laughs) And so I designed these really not great little masses. I actually use glass block in them, if you can imagine. Oh my God. I actually use glass block. That's brutal. I know. And uh, I can't believe you admitted that. I know I did admit it. Ouch. But I was gluing it up. And I was sitting there at my desk and I was holding it while the glue dried. The model of it. The model of it. And I dropped it. And it fell in slow motion. Is it pinwheeling towards the ground? Yeah. Oh my God. And it hit the ground and it didn't explode. It just kind of came apart in various ways. It was only, let's see, one, two, three, five pieces. 
and it kind of unhinged but still stayed connected to where it was like one long piece and as I tried to fold it back together one of the pieces had kind of inverted and when I put it back together it was kind of half upside down and half of it was not upside down but it was cooler and you were like oh my gosh it was cooler and so I was like I just glued it back together that way and um, and I changed my drawings and I changed everything <laughs> and when it was presented me and one other person the professor at the time at UT his name was Lance Tatum I believe he singled my project out and this other person's as being like on another level from everyone else in the studio. And I kind of felt a little shame because I was like, I dropped that on the floor. And the result, when I picked it up, created this form. Pushed that, me to another level. Yeah. And so I struggled with that a little bit. Struggled may not be the right word. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I'm a little guilty because I was getting all this credit for something that I kind of didn't really do on purpose. But then someone pointed out to me and they're like, well, you knew enough not to put it back the way it was. Like you recognized yeah. it for being You recognize it for being better that you dropped it on the floor. Yeah. That's Serendipity. Yeah. It happens, right? And, yeah, I agree. And the skill is not in addressing the setback of dropping it. It was recognizing. Recognition of the fact that better. it had done something better. Yeah. And mainly because it was cooler. It was cooler. <laughs> That's so cool. It was much cooler. Yeah, I wish I had photos of it. It was kind of a groovy little project, but yeah. All of a sudden, that piece breaking and flipping over and me putting it back together into something that was decidedly better, that was like a watershed moment in my career and <laughs> my education. All of a sudden, I realized, I go, wow, I can like not do things so direct. Mm -hmm. It's okay to go, well, this is how it's normally done, but or you could just like completely flip something on its head and maybe it's better. I mean, that's kind of the point, though, even of what we've been talking about. I mean, that's architecture school in general. And I don't think you're ever going to get that if you design straight out of the box, simple programs. If your professors ask you to solve a problem that you have all sorts of intimate knowledge with already, mm -hmm. it's really hard to to put Break yourself away in a from position what you already know. to reinterpret it in such a way that would give you an out of the box kind of solution. Which is exactly like we were talking about. You're going to do a house, but you're going to do it on the dark side of the moon, or you're going to do it at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. or. And what kind of problems do you have to solve because you chose to put it on the dark side of the moon? So yeah, I had a, when I was in, I think it was my third year, maybe early fourth year, and it was a museum that we were designing in Houston, like next to the Dumanil. High bar. Yeah. And so... The object of the course was about sustainability, which was pretty new at the time as a concept um, in the early 90s. And my solution had an underground museum area that had an open courtyard that was subterranean. And then the cooling for the entire space was a giant open air water cooled tower that was supposed to be like a heat vent. So it was really literally it was a giant shower that was open to the whole space. <laughs> but hey, but it was really thick concrete and the I was going to draw the natural ventilation through and all, you know, so it was an exercise in those kind of things, but it's application in real life. Had that ever gotten built in Houston, would it, it would have been a swamp pit. Everything would have molded day three. It would have been terrible. Yeah. After it opened, but I got high marks for it. Conceptually, it, it, it was really amazing. great. Yeah. It was, and I mean, I did these cool drawings and it was so great. And I was like, man, this is the best thing ever. The, the last project I have, and I have to talk about this one because it's really the only project I still have documentation of. You know, now that I'm 25 years removed from school. That's, I still have all mine. I didn't I keep all that some stuff. I my drawings. Yeah, I didn't keep all this stuff. But we ended up doing a project, and it was it was that one project I mentioned earlier in the episode. It was a house, and 
we were given the graduating seniors were given the extra requirement to make it a commentary on your education. The thing that I thought was kind of funny was I just come out of a, a studio where this guy like never came to class and the professor hated him. And this guy had gone on a work release program and didn't come back for like five years. So they finally said, you, you need to leave and go get your education and then we'll take you back again. But you got to go finish. So this guy was just trying to do his time so he'd get his grade and graduate, graduate and go and back, go to, back to where he was. Yeah, I got you. Okay. The thing about it was he brought with him into his studio experience. Like I work, I have a real job. I know like what it means to show up at eight and work with your head down all day. All day. Yeah. As opposed to we're all like, hey man, we'll go get a coffee. And he could draw fantastically. I mean, like so, so, so good. But the problem is we were doing a fairly complicated project and all the reviewers and jurors were looking at it going, this is so amazing. And it just didn't work. Everything about it just didn't work. But it looked incredible. I mean, this guy could draw like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of us were really kind of mad because we're like, it's style over substance. So I decided to make this last house project of mine a commentary of style over substance. So this was on Mount Bunnell in Austin. So I went to school down there. Everybody had the same site. And it was the one lot on this one road that had not been developed because it was so impractical. It was like a, the drop off on it was precipitous. And it was this weird kind of triangular shape. It was not an easy site to just plop a suburban house on. And so I ended up making this cubed house but I designed it on a tartan grid, which is a fancy way of saying like a plaid. So there was an exterior wall, and then there was circulation, and then there was a cube, and then there's the circulation. So it had this like checks kind of layout pattern mm -hmm. of different varying widths, depending on what happened in each one of these grids. And my commentary on the style over substance was, this site's all about the view. Look down at the Colorado River. So I said, I'm going to make a house that has like no openings in it, except for one. And I was going to put it on one corner of it. And then inside all the cubes that were inside my big house cube, like my big house was a cube. And then all the rooms were their own individual cubes. I covered all the interior walls and mirrors. And so what would happen in theory, what I was suggesting was that if I look at something, it's mirror, it's going to keep reflecting until it reaches the one surface that doesn't reflect back, which would be the one window I put in this entire building. Mm -hmm. which was the corner of this one level. And nobody really thought that that, was, that could work. And so I built this little mirrored cubes and I put it on there and, and I'd bring it and everybody couldn't stop playing with it because they would hold it in front of their face. And it was almost as if there was nothing there because you could like see through the mirrors because they would just keep reflecting until they got to the other side, which was open. And everyone was just blown away by this. And I was like, this would be the worst house ever, ever to live in in any existence, but the commentary to, to put a point on it, this house that had no windows was all about the view. Like you couldn't get away from the view, no matter which way you were facing, no matter what space you were in. It was always reflected in something. It always reflected back until it hit the one window, no matter what you did. So the only way to escape the view was to go inside one of the cubed rooms because the interiors weren't mirrored. It was very clever. But it was, oh, yeah. it literally was like the worst house. Like you would want to kill yourself if this was your actual house. But man, I got the highest of high marks on this project. <laughs> You're talking about style over substance. I think that's still a problem. 
when we were in school, it was if somebody could draw because we were using computers. But man, if you could draw something that was out of your brain and you could blow everybody away. But now if you can render and do some crazy renderings, your project could be garbage. Yeah. But you can make it look so beautiful and realistic or otherworldly yeah. that some people can fall into the trap of, oh, that's just it's gorgeous. This should be its own episode, quite honestly, because yeah, you know, we talked should a, be. Well, we talked a little bit about the jury process, and it was the idea that your professor is all that really matters because they've been with you the whole way and they understand your project and what you're doing. As a juror, I got eight minutes to figure out your project. Mm-hmm. I don't really know if it works or if it doesn't work. So am I going to be swayed by the graphics and the presentation qualities? Of course I am. Even if I know that and I go into it going, don't, I look at it and go, it's well, maybe it's to. effort, right? Maybe this reflects effort or ability or some skill level that I can say, okay, marks for doing X when somebody else didn't do it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's a better project. It just means they have a different skill set that they're able to take advantage of during the eight minutes that I have to look at that project. Sure. So before we move on to the last segment of the episode, I'm going to wrap it up by just kind of saying to the people who are listening, your college projects will be silly because they're designed to make you think outside of what you already know. And you're supposed to be forced to evaluate your own belief system and your own understanding of how spaces work and the things that shape your ideas. That's why you get projects that you can't readily pull a solution out of your back pocket. I think it's why a lot of schools don't actually do houses as design projects. Yeah, because it's such a familiar thing that you already know how to solve. If you do a house, it's got to be somewhere else or some crazy twist to it. They want you to solve something that you haven't had to solve before, so it forces you to think outside of your current knowledge base. That's the wrap-up. Now it's time to move on to the hypothetical. Okay, so this hypothetical is really interesting, but it's a bit complicated. This is really complex. It's complicated. So here it is. We'll probably end up having to spend about half our time just explaining how it works. The premise. Yes. So an all-powerful deity gives you the power to time travel, but they tell you that they will only set up the parameters of this time travel this one time that you can only use this time travel power once per calendar year, but you can set the duration for how far back in time you travel. All right. You with me so far? Yep. You cannot travel back to current time once you've traveled. So if you go back in time, if I go back to 1744, guess what? I'm stuck there. You're stuck there. You At have least to, for a year. No. Oh, I can't. You can't ever travel forward. Forward. Oh, it's only back. You have to live your way forward. Forward. Okay. You can only travel back. And I will tell you that you retain your knowledge when you travel back in time. So the question to you is how far back in time do you set this default? Because like when you said to 1750, you're like, okay, so you're going to travel back 300 years, years or whatever I'm it is. dead in two, three days because I can't live in that time period. That's right. Yeah. So you set how far back the time travel happens, and what is your reasoning for the period of time in which you chose? So better help explain or understand. Calendar year, I can do it once. Yeah, only travel back in time once One time per calendar per year. year. And from that point, wherever I end up, I have to continue to live. You have to live forward. So let's say you, forward. Let's say you make it one day. So right now we're recording. It's I could go Sunday back one day. And... It'll be this time on Saturday. When you do whatever it is you do, you just have to live your way back to this moment. So 
I get an extra long infinite life of sorts. <laughs> only, really. only once a year. Well, yeah. Okay. So, so you can't like go back in two weeks, have a vacation. Then when you live your way forward, go back and do it again. Cause you can only go back once per year. Yeah. But I get to know the things that I know now that go with me. So that's right. Whatever. Okay. And I've thought about this one a little bit. My answer is six months. Okay. Six months in a year. And I think the reason for that is it's kind of in the middle. <laughs> I think I could manage six months at a time in a way of if something's bad, I've got six months. And I know where you're gonna I know what you're gonna beat me up with here in just a second. That's a terrible answer. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> mainly because I think that six months for me the idea of that is having to relive the stuff. As a good thing or as a bad thing? As a bad thing. Right. I mean, I could say a year. Every time I'm gonna do a year, but I don't wanna have to relive the same year. Even if I'm changing things, right? It's not the whole year is not going to be. I wouldn't assume drastically different unless there's just one decision that I could have made that would have changed everything. But I think six months is enough time for me to figure that out. We could discuss whether or not chaos theory figures into this at some point. And I think it probably does. That you're going to go back and you're going to change things, so it's going to change everything else. That's another reason why I chose six months because I feel like it's it's enough that I could make changes that I wanted to make, but that might not drastically change everything. It's just sort of a medium point to me in my mind that I could live with and probably make changes that would affect the outcome, but not drastically modify everything. I got you. Because if I did a year, yeah, the whole year could be different because of the decision I made on the second day back, which was the reason that I went back and then the whole thing falls apart. So six months is my, I think, I mean, for that, but also because the idea of me reliving everything yes. is like, oh, I don't want to do that. Right. And But a day is too short, a week, mm, maybe a month. Mm. But if I chose six months because I feel like I know that's a big enough time, six and I'm months. sure it's wrong. But it's not wrong. It's just kind of whatever. Your answer is going to be what? I'm still deciding right now. No, you got to do it right. <laughs> if I were to remove the chaos theory, so here's kind of the idea. And the reason why I thought of this as a hypothetical was the length of time that you choose really kind of suggests what sort of problems you might want to solve by going back in time. For example. Let's say that I'm driving in a car with my wife and we go through an intersection and somebody runs the red light and they T-bone us and she breaks her collarbone and her leg and it's really bad. And I go, well, I'm going to travel back a week. And then so when this day comes up again, we're not, we're not going to drive. We're not going to drive through that intersection. So she, we don't get T-boned and she doesn't get hurt. Mm -hmm. So I do that. Boom. She doesn't get hurt. Well, I can only do it once a year. I got to wait another year when it could happen again. Some, and, and she could die. It could be worse. It could be a lot worse. And I go, I've used up my one per year time travel to solve a broken collarbone where I could have saved her life. Yeah. That's the thing that sort of suggests if you choose a longer period of time, it allows you to evaluate what problem you want to solve because you have more problems at which you can deal with. Right. So yeah. if somebody just goes, I'd go back one day. Well, it's pretty reactionary because that means the only problem you can solve is what happened in the last 24 hours. Is that I had to wait in line extra long for barbecue today. I would have gotten up an hour earlier. Yeah, if I'd, if I'd <laughs> done I would have gotten those burnt ends. That's right. That's how I could have <laughs> solved that particular problem. Yeah. So it seems like the longer you pick, the bigger the problem you might be able to solve because you have all the problems in front of you to decide what you want to solve. Exactly. If you put chaos theory into it, it could be that you got to try to do exactly everything the same way so that when the time comes, let's say that for that problem to present itself. It's yeah. Let's say there. that the death happens in October. And so you wait until December to travel back in time. Your period is one year. 
That yeah. seems like the safest one is to go, well, I can only do it once a year. So I'm going to make my travel back in time be one year. So I have the entire year in front of me to know what problem I want to solve. Yeah, that sounds Well, horrible. then you got to live your way all the way back to October to go, this is when the accident happened. But could have anything that you had done in the preceding 10, 10 months, months changed the fact that it's sure. no longer going to happen? Yeah, for sure. Right? I, mean, I think definitely. If in this scenario, I think that's a given. Yeah. So the time that I decided, because I think that would be maddening. I mean, I think you would end up spending your life evaluating what problems you're going to solve and dedicating yourself to like trying to recreate every single day so you can solve the one problem that you wanted to solve. Yeah, I think so. So I actually went short for the exact opposite reason. Yeah. I chose two weeks. Huh. Interesting. And in a very superficial way, it's because I could go on vacation for two weeks and then go on another vacation for two weeks. So I can- <laughs> Have, so I can have four weeks of uninterrupted four vacation. Weeks of vacation. Yeah. And the thing about it is, let's say I'm with my family. They don't know that no one they else knows. Yeah, you're the only person that knows this. So I get the benefit of four weeks vacation. They don't. They don't. Yeah. And it could be that they want to, like, let's say that we decide we're going to go to Disney World, and we decide afterwards is that was terrible. Maybe we should have cut short gone and gone to Universal Studios instead of. Well, I can fix that problem. Yeah. And we didn't even bring up the fact, and this is what I thought was interesting. I didn't even think about the idea, well, two weeks is enough for me to go back with a winning lottery ticket. That's what I was going to say. My six months, I can find the biggest lottery, the $900 million winning lottery, and I can do it. Yeah. Let's get to dubious since intentions I, now. Since I can so, do yeah. it every year, I don't need the biggest one. Say I win $50 million. Well, I can go get another $50 million next year. I can go get the next the $800 million every year. At a certain, I could be the winningest guy ever. At a certain point, Until they throw me in jail because they think you're cheating. Yeah. At a certain point, what are you going to do with that money? It's a per- Set up my family, like Give the rest of my generations. That was the thing. For the six months, I thought of that that would be the other part. Is if I have full knowledge, and in six months, I would be able to, I would just write them all down and keep them and go, this is the one I need to have. Boop. But I'd also make it to the point where like, it was exactly six months from the day that that happened that I would, if I'm going back six months, I want it to be that day. So I've only got to remember that number for like one hour that it takes for me to get and then go that's get right. a lottery ticket. That's right. right. Cause you're not, you can't bring like a book back with you. That's got everything written down. I mean, don't get me wrong. I can memorize the number. I got every number in my wallet memorized. Still, I don't want to take the chance. I'm going to go back to that exact six months from Saturday, $458 million. I got the numbers. Yeah, but see, the thing that I thought was so interesting is it really didn't have to do with me going back and getting the money. Unlike the superpower one where I started. Oh, I know. Corporate. I didn't go there first either at all. Yeah, it was all it was all like, don't make that mistake or don't let that person get hurt. Or I actually didn't even think of that till we were sitting here just now about the money. Yeah. Don't you think which is kind of wild? But yeah, yeah. The superpower. That was where we first went. Exactly. I know. Instantly. Sitting here right now, you're talking about two weeks. I was like, if I go back and get six months with the lottery, I could do it. And I guess to me, the six-month thing, I agree with you in that a year to me is just too much. I think you would spend that year trying to figure out what's the worst thing that's going to happen to me that I've got to fix. You become a little manic over your behavior. Yeah, and, and, right, yeah. And you might even be thinking, well, I made this decision which led her to making that decision, which caused her to do this, and then that's how the accident ha- Like, yeah, you, know, you would yeah. start to try to, where did I first start to unravel this thread that yeah, caused this action? what's the better effect that got me there? Yeah. And that's why I think that six months, I could take on some bigger things, but they wouldn't be like huge things. I do think it's interesting that you chose six months, which is like the worst answer, by the way. Nah, I'm not, I, I know. Because, and here's why. Yeah, here's go why. for it. Tell me. It seems Once as again. though, I'm giving you a hard time, but it does seem like it should be either, like it should be a short period or it should be like a long period. 
the in the middle seems like kind of the best and the worst of both. It's the middle. Yeah. And I kind of go like bad things associated with you going back in time for a lengthy period of time are not really there for the two week. So while, while I don't have all the good that maybe six months has, I don't have any of the bad that comes along with it either. Yeah. But see, I don't see the bad in six months like you do. I see the bad in a year. I don't see the bad in six months. I don't see much difference between six and Uh, 12. That's, that's kind of the point. I do a lot. I guess I don't have that many big, bold moves. Well, I don't either, but just having to relive a year versus six months to me, six months was what? February or something at this point or. Man, I bet you'd start keeping like good diary to help you remember what happened on what day. Because you don't know if what you did on February 12th becomes important maybe until yeah. two or three or four or maybe, maybe five not. months later. Because you're going to start to evaluate everything with a six-month lifespan. Maybe. But I guess that's what I'm saying. I don't think that I would. Of course you would. How could you not? I don't think that I would. Then why would you choose six months? Why don't you just choose two weeks if you're not going to evaluate something and its impact over a longer period of time? Because I feel like that... The six-month time period is bigger to have something that's more impactful. You're just looking for like life-changing. Big problems. Don't get hit by that car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can do that. Get hit by a car right then. I got two weeks to decide to go back and fix that problem. And then within two weeks, you get hit again. But you could get hit in seven months later. This is true. You haven't really gotten rid of that problem. But the likelihood is a little bit less. But that's why I go, it's either two weeks or it's like a 11 months uh, it's one no, or the other yeah. the, in the middle stuff is i go you have you've, you've reduced the all the bad no you've reduced the probability some you can't you stuff. can't tell me one good thing that you can do in six months that i couldn't do in two weeks really yeah for sure you could say well i have more time I to have change, something I bad happen my diet and lose 400 pounds you can't do that in two weeks i could do that in six months one, you don't even weigh 400 pounds. I know, but I'm saying I could make longer term changes that I could see the result of whatever. You could do that now without time travel. I know that I could. <laughs> I'm just saying, though, but if it was something else that, I mean, I don't know. I bought a pair of shoes that I wore for six months and I realized they totally tweaked out my knees. I'm going to go relive six months of my life to not buy that pair of shoes. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> okay. Worst answer. Mm. No, Nick still got the worst answer. Uh, give me time. I'm sure you're going to come up with something that's the worst answer ever. Okay, so I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 32. Architecture school projects are silly. If you like today's episode and can find it in your heart, please take the next 30 seconds and head on over to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast so you get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please leave us some feedback and a five-star Dark Side of the Moon Habitat Pod rating. If iTunes isn't your player of choice, we're also available on iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play, and a bunch of other platforms. They're all free, and all you have to do is hit the subscribe button on your podcast listening app of choice. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Also, be sure to stick around until the very end, and we'll attempt to reward you with our version of a blooper reel. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cheers. Take it easy, everybody. You did it again, yeah. Yeah, right? All right. Is that our new? That's our new. No, that's not. Come on, yeah. That's going to get cut out, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. We're not medieval times, hypothetical. (laughs) I'm like riding on my horse with my helmet in my side. I'm drinking a half yard of beer right now. I wish. Yeah. Yeah. This is life of an (laughs) architect.
live from Dallas, Texas. Coming to you live from the Borson bedroom. Here we go. This is live. <laughs> I got to snap my fingers when I walk, too. Like every four step, I got to snap my fingers. Like, uh, mm, 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 mm. do finger guns. Yeah, you got to do finger guns for sure. Yeah, we're going to be at Construct Expo. Yeah, we're going to be at Construct. Nope. God. Why can't I say that word? You're going to have a fun time editing this. I know. Yeah, we're going to be at Construct. 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 Construction. Uh, Construct. I know. (laughs) God. I don't know if it's the capital letters or what. Anyway, but it's also because I think it's conference. Construct. I don't care why it is. Yeah, I know. All right, fine. Yeah, we're going to be at Construct. (laughs) Hell. God. <laughs> oh, okay. Construct. 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 Go.